Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week on the site, Danny Kelly, Robert Mays, and Kevin Clark will be offering their takeaways after each day at the NFL Combine. Miles Surrey brings you his Ringer Guide to Streaming in March, and Andrew Gridadaro tells you how to survive The Bachelor. You can check those out and more on TheRinger.com. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. I think this would be the corner three, but our foot might be on the line. I think we're going to call this the long two this week. Uh, as you can Ooh, pro- I like it. As you can probably tell, I am not Kevin O'Connor. This is Danny Chow filling in for KOC, who is back at his home turf, hamming it up with all the nerds at the Sloan Conference in Boston. But the show must go on. So joining me on the line from Dallas is Ringer staff writer Jonathan Charks. How's it going, man? I like the whole long two thing because I'm picturing it's like this. Like, you know when you lose a star from an offense? You got to change the possessions around. Everybody else gets more shots and they take, you just take lower percentage shots. So expect a lot more long two Jack, Jack takes today. Oh man. Should we call ourselves the Ewing Theory podcast then? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, so this episode is produced by Bobby Wagner, of course, and we're recording this at 9, 10 a.m. We had a couple of doozies on TNT last night, uh, but let's start with what might've been the game of the night. Uh, the Jazz beat the Nuggets in Denver 111-104 to in a game that was both closer and not as close as the score indicated. Uh, the Jazz looked in control for most of the night, but the Nuggets showed a lot of fight in the second half. Ultimately, though, they basically caught a Utah team that showed every single facet of you know their, their strengths. Basically, every reason why they should be considered one of the most dangerous teams in the West. Charts, what did you see from that game? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking about it for a while. So Rubio missed this game and that changed Utah's lineup. So instead of playing like Rubio and Mitchell in the backcourt, they went uh, Mitchell, they put Ingles basically the point forward and they had O'Neal and Crowder as the wings. So basically you have Gobert at center, Mitchell at point, and then like three, six, 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 seven switchable defenders. And I feel like this version of Utah is actually a little more dangerous even without Rubio. Yeah, and just for... Clarification, Rubio sat out the game because of a sore hamstring. Also, Howell Neto was out. Dante Exum was out. So they basically didn't have any point guards. Joe Ingles had an amazing game, a double-double with, you know, 11 or 12 assists. Uh, Donovan Mitchell was basically off-ball for most of the game, but took over the game in the final two minutes. And yeah, this is like, this was a textbook performance for the Jazz. You had a signature defensive outing from Gobert, probably one of the best of his season, considering the stakes and considering um, the guy he was guarding. Yeah, which we should get into, that Gobert versus Jokic matchup. Yeah. Because like, I was thinking about it. Jokic's whole game is basically, I am bigger than you. I can shoot over you. And if you press it, I can get around you. And like, Gobert is like the one player in the league who can cover up Jokic, right? Right. Like, Gobert, he's probably faster than Jokic. I mean, he's faster than Jokic. He he's just as strong. Jokic can't push him out of the way. And it really kind of gives him a lot of trouble. It kind of reminds me of a back. Here's an old back in the day with the Mavs. The player I always could direct the most trouble was Lamar Odom. Like these long athletic defenders to guard these stretchy big men. Right. And so I went by looking at the numbers. So they've played 10 games in their career, Gobert and Jokic. Chris, this is courtesy of LanaBasketball.com. So I don't stand by these numbers, but I'm glad that they have. <laughs> and they have it as in those 10 games, Gobert averages 13.3 points a game. And Jokic averages 13.4 points a game. And so obviously, if you're Utah, it's a great win for you. If you're 
Because if you're if Oko Bear's holding Jokic so far below his averages. Right. And one thing that I've kind of been talking about almost repeatedly on this podcast is how Gobert looks a lot more comfortable kind of defending out on the perimeter. And so what you saw out of Gobert yesterday against Jokic was basically him covering Jokic in every single possible scenario. He stonewalled him down low, contained him on perimeter drives. And I think Gobert's length is what kind of bothers uh, Jokic, who doesn't really have the angles anymore when you're being defended by a dude who has like a 7-8 wingspan who can cover you from the three-point line out. So yeah, it, it was really one of those performances where, oh, Gobert might be a little bit better than he was in the playoffs last year, but also, what are we really expecting from Jokic this season in the playoffs? Well, it's really all about matchups, right? Yeah. I think if you're Denver, the good news is I don't really see anybody else in the West who can cover Jokic like Gobert can. I mean, Gobert's such a freak. Right. Yeah, there's really no other center is that long and that active and that strong. It's a really rare combination. But I do think it, it answers the, the question kind of just raised. Like, if Jokic is not creating shots for others, who do you really trust in Denver on the offense through? Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at like Jamal Murray or Paul Millsap, I guess. Yeah, it, it's it's weird because when we talk about Murray, we're talking about, and, and KOC has written about this in the past, where they kind of run this very unconventional kind of one-five pick and roll a lot of the time with Murray and a lot of these dribble handoffs to get Murray involved. But he's not necessarily their traditional playmaker type. And you're looking at kind of these weird sets where they're trying to get random guys you know, involved, but it still all kind of revolves around Jokic. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure if they have that kind of guy who is going to be like that steadying presence with when Jokic is off. My thing is, if I'm playing Denver in the playoffs, like my game plan, like I'm making Jokic be a scorer. Right. I'm not sending him help. I'm making everybody else beat me. Like if Jokic scores 30 points and he scores 30 points, but I want to hold his assists down and I want to make the rest of his teammates kind of live on their own. Yeah. I think that's the key if I was going to go up against Denver in the series. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of a weird comparison, but... That's basically the strategy a lot of the times when you looked at the seven or seven seconds or less Suns, where teams were basically forcing Steve Nash to be a scorer, and he can do it. Like he dropped forty points in several games in the playoffs over his career, but he's obviously not comfortable doing that. And that's yeah, it goes not, against his DNA exactly. And those games are when you know the Suns are least dangerous because suddenly the ball isn't moving quite as much, and suddenly Nash is having to hunt down his own shot. It throws a, a serious wrench into the into the mix, and I think that's why Denver brought in Isaiah Thomas. Right. I think was kind of the idea. If Jokic kind of gets stymied, there's somebody else who can go one on one. I don't know if that's going to work though. But uh, yeah, he has not looked very good, and we can probably chalk that up to rust. We can chalk it up to him still getting into game shape, but. You know, this team is definitely in the hunt for the number one seed. And you could argue that they should probably be going for it as hard as they can to try and maintain home court advantage. They're not a great road team. At what point do you say this Isaiah Thomas experiment probably isn't going to work and just scrap it? I think what's really hurt them is not hurt him, not hurt them, but hurt him is Monte Morris. Monte Morris, because like, I think the thought was the start of the season, we'll give Monte Morris second year point guard, second round pick. He'll be the backup for like three months. Then we'll phase him out, bring Isaiah in. But Morris has been so good, he has to play. Right. But now you're playing two really, really small guards off the bench. And that's just tough in the playoffs. I feel like perimeter length and size is so important. And now Denver is really small in the perimeter. And I think one thing that the Nuggets did to really get themselves back in the game was 
it was Will Barton. Will Barton was a huge energy guy, mm. getting all these defensive rebounds, bringing the ball up the court, pick and rolls. He really brought the energy. And one thing that I was wondering is like, they brought Gary Harris off the bench and I can kind of see Barton and Gary Harris being kind of these like boys in in the backcourt to kind of like maintain a certain level of equilibrium with this with this uh, Nuggets offense. I kind of so like when Jokic is not playing. Kind right. Of? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of enable Gary Harris more as, you know, a, a, a primary and secondary playmaker, playmaker in the uh, second unit. I honestly think this is probably me being partial to my guy Malik Beasley, who kind of really works in that in that starting lineup. He's a perfect off-ball threat, and he's I think as a starter, he's actually got 50-50-90 splits. The guy's wow, just like ridiculously efficient. Uh, with, I mean, it makes sense because like you, a guy like that off Jokic, right. he's doing less thinking. Jokic is giving him more shots as opposed to being more of a creator for himself in the second unit. Right, and that's just not something that the Nuggets have necessarily seen out of Beasley yet. And so, you know, I would rather give that role to, you know, someone who is a little bit more accomplished, a little bit more familiar with it, like Gary Harris. It's not a demotion in my in my mind, but like if you can have a super sub, uh, especially with a team that has the kind of depth that the Nuggets have, I think that's a boon. They're going to be a fascinating team to watch in the playoffs. They've never been there before. They have so many young guys. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they look like. In the yeah. Yeah, what, one thing that I, I worry about, you know, and, and it's obviously something that's been on our minds for the past two years, is just like, what does Jokic look like on defense in the playoffs? Like, he was in foul trouble yesterday, and when he's in foul trouble, he, he just doesn't offer anything on defense because he knows how much he has to expend on offense. And so he's basically just like letting guys drive by him because there's nothing really he can do. He doesn't have like the margin for error with his uh, physique. Yeah, it feels like for them matchups will be key. Yeah. Is there is there any team that's in the hunt for like the 7 and 8 seeds that you think might be able to give them like a legitimate scare? Well, I mean, the Lakers obviously, yeah, right? right? Like LeBron, Le- LeBron's always out there looming. I know LeBron's not scared of them. Whether that matters <laughs> or not, I don't know. Right. Uh yeah, is there anything else that we should touch on with the Jazz? I, I think that that win was just really impressive. I we we basically covered, you know, the, the their ideal lineup, uh, which I guess we should reiterate it. It would be Donovan Mitchell, Royce O'Neal, Joe Ingles, Jay Crowder. The great Joe Ingles. Jay Crowder and Rudy Gobert. Okay, so fun and small sample size, those guys are plus 26.6 in 65 minutes this season. That is that is insane. That is ridiculous. And it's also like just a massive defensive unit. Like Mitchell might only be 6'3, but he has a 6'10 wingspan, which essentially means he's a 6'6 wing. Functional. Yeah, he's very switchable. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, like with Rubio and Mitchell, I feel like Rubio has like training wheels for Mitchell. Like Rubio will take care of the ball, he'll run sets, blah, blah, blah. But he's a, you know, he's a point guard. Not a great shooter, takes the ball out of Mitchell's hands and leaves you a lot more small in the perimeter. Like to me, Rubio is a guy, he gets you only so far, then you gotta let him go. Right. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that's really fascinating about the Jazz this year and last year is that, you know, they're once again kind of surging in the second half of the year. And it, it kind of makes me think like they're just a second half team. It's because you need time for your players to gel. And it's not always just because of personnel, it's about how the league changes around you. 
And well, I mean, a lot of it too is a schedule though. Yeah. I don't know if it was the same last year. Their schedule was crazy for Nona this year. Now it's really evening up. And right. what's interesting is I, we were looking at the numbers on Slack today. Like they can make a run at the three seed. Yeah. And if that happens and if they get, if we get OKC Houston first round, oh my God, I, I could not, that would, the takes from that series alone <laughs> would be mind, mind melting. The weird thing right now is that, so the, the top three seeds in the West are kind of slumping a little bit and the four, five, and six seeds are on like long win streaks. So we could be seeing a lot of shuffling. I think there's only three games separating three and six. And so, you know, there's still a lot of playoff jockeying uh, left to be had, especially in, in those high, high up, like, you know, four, three, four, five seeds. So, and man, the, if you could avoid Golden State side of the bracket, yeah, that would, I mean, I, we'll see in like the last two weeks of the season, but that could be a lot of like moving around because that is just avoiding Golden State as long as possible is huge. Because I think with Golden State, like, you're always like, man, what if Steph gets hurt? Mm-hmm. Right. You give yourself more time, Steph gets hurt, all of a sudden it's open for anybody. Do you, so do you think, the Warriors end up with the number one seed? I don't know. I mean, I don't think they have much incentive to push for it. Right. So, and they're, they're getting boogie back in. I don't know that they really are going to try to push for the one that hard. And so, actually, the one team that uh, kind of made this possible for the Jazz to, to move up was actually the Thunder losing yesterday in the first game of the TNT doubleheader. Uh, the Sixers won 108 to 104 against the Thunder. No Paul George, no Embiid. That's a weird game. Weird game. Uh, we got to see a lot of our, you know, corner three favorites kind of get some shine yesterday. Um, but yeah, what, what was your big takeaway from that game? I mean, the thing I've, I've been interested in watching the last few weeks with Embiid resting or whatever he's doing right now is like, so they played Simmons at the five, which I was kind of surprised looking at the numbers. According to the numbers, this is the first time all season last night he didn't play with either Embiid, Muscala, Johnson, Bolden, or uh, Boban. So it was like Simmons. They closed the game, I think, with Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Mike Scott, J.J. Redick. Right. Those lineups have been killing it. So Simmons, Butler, Harris, no Embiid, plus 25.4 in 74 minutes this season. That Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, and it's basically what you've been kind of clamoring for most of the season. It's just, you know, surrounding Simmons with as many shooters and playmakers as possible. Yeah, I think for sure, if you're Philly... In the playoffs, maybe the idea should be you leverage Embiid and you play the other three stars without him when you stagger the minutes. Because I think that is such an interesting look for a team. Like, to change from Embiid at the five to Simmons at the five, Right, it's such a wild difference in styles over the course of the game. I think it really allows you to dictate tempo and lineups with the other team if you're making such a wild switch like that. It really actually doesn't surprise me that much that this is the first time Simmons is playing the five. Like I, I feel like Brett Brown's pretty conservative with the way he trots out his centers. Like, Muscala got a lot of time next to Embiid. I think trots out is the right yeah. word for Amir and Muscala. Yeah. Slot trotting. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I make this joke every single time I see Amir, but it's just like, you can hear his ankles creaking like every single time he's on the floor. Like, it, I, I can't believe he's still playing. Be careful. He's out on Twitter clapping back at writers, though. I saw that. <laughs> no, he's, so he's amazing. He's, he's a Toronto legend. Like, he's, a, he's probably the guy who taught Ed Davis all he knows about being, you know, a lovable teammate. I, I love him. It's just, you know. And I think, too, with like these Simmons-Harris lineups, I think that's where Harris can be most valuable is playing with Simmons and smaller looks. Because then you can go real fast. You have a second scorer. He's spreading the floor for Simmons. I mean, I think that, to me, is the most... That was like what really jumped on me from this game. Right. And then, of course, there's Jonah Bolden, our arm fan, 
our hero, oh, man. Jonah Bolden. Yeah, KOC's out, so we can go real wild. Let, let's let's do like 50 minutes on Jonah Bolden. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it, this was his this was his best game as a pro. Uh, he shot six of seven from the field and really did it in a variety of ways. It, it wasn't any one particular space on the floor where he did it. You know, he was a roll man in pick and rolls, caught some alley-oops, uh, you know, drove past dudes on closeouts, hit some threes. If If they can get consistent production out of Bolden. I think that's that's huge. He's really skilled for a guy his size. He's very active. He's kind of wild sometimes, but I wonder if Brett Brown trusts him in the playoffs. It feels yeah. like Brown's going to want to play his vets and like he won't want to deal with the highs and lows of the Bolden experience. Oh man. So like but how many Amir Johnson minutes are we getting then? Yeah, then there's maybe it's like Mike Scott. Right. Maybe I can't imagine Amir's going to play much in the playoffs, but or Boban either for that matter. So Bolden, I mean, there are minutes for Bolden. Whether he can take advantage of, I think, would really make Philly would raise feeling of their team. I mean, we will we will always always clamor for more Jonah Bolden minutes. Um, yeah, and the crazy thing is, he was like the one year when he went overseas, he was shooting like forty percent from three, and his his shooting's come down since then. But if he becomes a consistent three point shooter on top of the rest of his game, he's going to be a really really good player. Right. And you, yeah, you were one of the you were one of the first guys who who wrote like an actual like pre draft profile on him, and and he he has like a very you know interesting background. So he, oh, he's I forgot he's Australian too, isn't he? That's right. Wait, I really? just remembered that. Oh, yeah, yeah, dang. yeah. Wait, so is can that work in his favor? Like Brett Brown, Australian connect, Simmons. I, I don't know. Let's let's make this happen. Uh, yeah. So you know, with the Thunder. Obviously, they were missing their MVP, but was there anything really to glean out of the the performances we saw last night? Uh, I think it's, it, was, it was funny though. Like, you know, what played well for them was Jeremy Grant, former <laughs> process veteran. Yep. yep, that was like the process guy. Like, they've made a lot of trades over the last few years, really bleeding value. Like Jeremy Grant, he's like a better version of Jonah Bolden. As hard, much much I hate to say it, he's like what we want Bolden to become, basically. But Bolden's not not as athletic as Jeremy Grant either. It's Fascinating because you have been on the Jeremy Grant train for years. Even you know, even before he became a reliable three-point shooter, he's he's shooting like thirty-nine percent from three this year on three and a half attempts per game. Like that is legit. You know, I was a little concerned when they brought in Markeith Morris that it would take away Grant's minutes, but I think Donovan's in the smart thing. Played Markeith off the bench, and he's really taken out Patrick Patterson. Oh, yeah. he's been by far their worst player all season. So I think that's a big plus for OKC going forward is getting P-Pat out of there and just playing Markeith those backup four or five minutes. Right. And yesterday, because George was out, they started both Markeith and Jeremy Grant. But I think with Jeremy Grant's threat of that three-point shot, he's really kind of opened up a little bit more, uh, you know, a dribble drive game. So he's still basically a straight line driver, but there are certain possessions that we saw yesterday where he's so athletic and he, yeah, that's the thing. Grant on a straight line, that's a fast straight line from yeah. A to B. That's not a lot of time. Yeah, it's, you know, one one first step off that closeout and it's probably one dribble and he's right at the rim. And so, like, there aren't that many athletes who, you know, can beat that. Like, have we heard a Roberson update? I have just realized, like, it's almost Mar- it's March now. Is, is he going to play this season? To be honest, like I always kind of forget that he's even on the team. Um, I mean, he's up not a year and a half now. Yeah, it's fascinating in the sense that, like, I think we're on the same boat in that 
we don't think Ro- like Robertson's going to be a guy who's going to swing anything for the Thunder, but it it would just be nice to have someone who you know knows the system and who, who can you know competently play to replace well, I mean, I was you know thinking, like Abdul Nader's minutes. Yeah, and I was thinking too, like if you're going to play Grant at the five or Markeith at the five, sure. it opens up more time at the wing for somebody, right? Yeah, and I, I think with. With the addition of Markeith, who, you know, the, the Rockets could have used, the, the, the Raptors could have used. So, you know, so many teams could have used this guy who can basically play three positions, guard three positions. You know, with Markeith, the, the Thunder can really trot out some interesting second unit lineups. Uh, they have, you know, Schroeder, Morris, and Noel. All three are basically like low-end starting caliber players who can kind of keep that second unit afloat. It's not a traditional... They they don't really have traditional depth in that they don't really have three and D guys, but those guys can kind of maintain a, a level of consistency for you know when when Westbrook is out and you know missing a bunch of shots. Yeah, and they they've really struggled with depth this season after Schroeder on their bench and I guess Nerlens like they've really been getting nothing from seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven on their roster. Yeah, like yeah, I said Abdel Nader. Hamadou Diallo is kind of playing some. We had like Deontay Burton's. We played. had one game where Deontay Burton was amazing, and I'm I'm like rooting for that guy, but I I don't know if it's necessarily his season. Okay, now this is we're really getting the deep cuts now. <laughs> talking Deontay Burton, <laughs> he's like he's like a, a PJ Tucker from you know 2009 with the jetpack. You know he's he's really athletic, but he's really built like a bowling ball. Okay, I could see it. He has to like realize like I'm a defensive player now. Like that's the thing. Because he was kind of like the ball. He was like, he has a big score in college. Now he has to move into, I'm a role player. I move the ball. I've hit shots. I don't go outside of myself. Right. So with the final stretch, I have one last question for you on, on the Thunder. With the final stretch coming up and Paul George very much in the thick of this MVP uh, conversation. Eh, you know. I, I feel like he is kind of the dark horse in the sense that, you know, in 2017, Kawhi was kind of like creeping into the discussion. He was like cemented himself as a possible, you know, option there. Is, is there anything he can do to like raise his candidacy? I mean, it's it's all at this point, it's all about team success, right? Yeah. You got to get OKC to the one seed. It'll be tough because they've got a crazy tough schedule coming up. Right. So we'll see, I guess. If he can like, I forget the numbers, but. They'll come look them up online if you want, but they have to play a lot of good teams down the stretch of the season. Yeah. And it'll be tough for them to stay at three, much less move up to two or one. I think if he's on the MVP, he has to get to the one seed, realistically. Right. And at at this point, it seems like, yeah, it's, it's looking unlikely because with that Sixers loss, they're, they've now lost three in a row. Uh, in danger, actually, they're, they're tied with the Blazers right now, uh, record-wise. So, you know, they, they could easily slip to the four. See, the thing that's crazy to me about the Paul George thing, like, he's a great, obviously, right? But to me, is he better than Kevin Durant? I mean, and Durant's getting knocked because he's not the number one option on his team. He doesn't hold the ball that often. But neither does George because he got Westbrook. Like, Durant, to me, is just a better version of Paul George. So why is he not getting MVP talk if Paul George is getting MVP talk? Narrative, dog. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's why KD's upset. I'm with you, KD. I see what these media hating on you. All right, I think that's all the talk we have for the uh, TNT games. Uh, right after this break, we'll bring on Zach Cram, who wrote a great piece about three-point revolution that we're having in the NBA. Here's something interesting. Studies show that security systems deter burglars. It's a fact. But there's still a burglary every eight seconds in America. How? 
Well, burglars don't give up just because some houses have security systems. They find a house that isn't protected, which is why securing your home is truly a necessity. So let me recommend this brilliant security system built by my friends at Simply Safe. At Simply Safe, they believe fear has no place in a place like home. So they made Simply Safe ridiculously smart. Its sensors will protect every point of access to your home. Doors, windows, garage, you name it. If a burglar ever tries to break in, an ear-shattering siren will let them know that the police are already on their way. Best of all, Simply Safe's 24/7 monitoring is just $14.99 a month, and they'll never lock you into a long-term contract. More than 3 million people already know it feels good to fear less with Simply Safe. So, go with the only home security system I trust, Simply Safe, by going to simplysafenba.com today. That's simplysafenba.com for the home security I trust. simplysafenba.com Okay, so we are joined by Ringer staff writer Zach Cram, our resident statistician who earlier this week published a fantastic feature story about just how far the NBA's three-point revolution will go. Uh, We're honored to have him join us. Zach, how's it going? Happy to be here. So for listeners who haven't got a chance to read the story, how would you summarize the piece's findings? Essentially that I think anyone who's listening to this podcast probably knows that three-pointers have taken over the NBA to some extent, but I looked into why that is, and I think more importantly for the future is why that might continue and might continue to grow. So I talked to, I guess, guys I called three-point evangelists, uh, coaches who have been in the the G League, uh, coaches who have been in college, skills trainer, who are sort of at the forefront of this movement and helping shepherd three-pointers along. And I think there were some really interesting findings about not just three-pointers increasing, but what specific kinds of three-pointers are increasing, what players are shooting more three-pointers that sort of paint a more uh, detailed picture about why we're seeing more threes. Okay, Zach. So my favorite quote in the story, you were talking to Daryl Morey, and he goes, most people think we were going too fast with the threes. You were the first person to ask why it went so slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was perfect. I Yeah, because I interviewed Daryl uh, actually back in the fall, and I was asking him, you know, like y- you have said that you always knew the value of three-pointers dating back to the days before you were a GM when you were an assistant with the Celtics. Like, why didn't you start taking a lot more three-pointers until 2015? And he said, basically, we had to get buy-in from the players. We had to get buy-in from the coaches. We had to get the right roster in place. And if you look at how Houston has built its roster over the last few seasons, you really see you know, how he connected those dots to build this kind of roster because it's not just James Harden. It's all the wings he brought in, uh, even some of the players who didn't work out who were asked to take more three-pointers. So that's sort of where it started with Houston. But I think you then see that kind of same roster building blossoming around the entire NBA. So sure, it might have started a little slower at first, but once it came into the NBA, it just started accelerating. Yeah, when I was reading this piece, I kept thinking of uh, Alice in Wonderland. And the part where he's like, we're on the opposite side of the looking glass now. And it's like, before this happened, it was like, oh, threes are so weird and crazy. And now that's happened, it's like, oh, this is obvious. Of course we should be doing this. Like, the league has totally changed. This just makes so much more sense to do. Right. And, and there, you know, there are parts in the piece where, you know, you talk about how, you know, basically a bunch of people had 
said that, you know, it, it's all about validation. Like when when the Warriors won that first championship, that was kind of when the floodgates happened because everyone was just like, okay, this can work. And everyone kind of had that thought, but it was just like, once it actually happened, let's let's just do this in earnest. And like this, you know, he's not maybe the most analytical basketball mind, but I think about like Charles Barkley talking on Inside the NBA about how jump shooting teams can't win championships. And even if that wasn't the most like statistically oriented mindset, it was kind of accepted more generally. So the Warriors were a really important part in pushing this forward. And then like, even though the Rockets haven't won a championship, they came really close last season shooting a lot of three pointers. So you have teams like the Bucks who have increased their three point rate, the percentage of shots that are three pointers. They were in the middle of the pack last season. Now they're in the top five. And the Nets are shooting more three-pointers because they didn't have the draft picks to build the, the talent, so they needed to kind of moneyball it and think, how can we gain an advantage? So there may be different routes that teams took to start shooting more threes, but they've all kind of drifted toward the same place. Yeah, and I think the Bucks are a perfect example of like, it goes beyond even just having being worth three points. Like you talk about later in the piece, it's all about like making the defense guard more space. And as you shoot more threes, also it means your twos are more valuable because the defense is guarding more area. So the Bucks have all these three-point shooters. Then they have Giannis inside who's shooting like 70% at the rim or something crazy. And just like it just makes the defense guard more areas of the floor. And the more you have to guard, the harder it is to do, obviously. This is something that I, I kind of explored in my uh, Steph Curry-Lonzo ball piece that, that we launched the ringer with. The idea that, you know, these players are forcing you to guard spaces on the floor that just like were never considered danger areas to begin with. Um, and one, one stat that I really thought was valuable in, in kind of understanding the value of a three-pointer was the one where the points per attempt from 23 feet were actually more valuable than, generated more points than the shots taken at two feet. Am, am I saying that correctly, Graham? Yeah, so that's not necessarily perfectly representative because you have to calculate like you're probably more likely to get a free throw if you shoot from two feet away. But if you ignore free throws, if you ignore turnovers, if you ignore offensive rebounds, uh, shots from 23 feet away generated more points per attempt than shots from two feet away last year. And to, to your point about defending new areas on the floor, uh, one of the quotes that ended up getting cut from the final piece is I talked to David Arsenault Jr., who is a D3 coach who for two seasons coached uh, Sacramento's D-League team. And uh, while he was there, his team shot a ton of three-pointers, and they had offensive ratings of 116 in both seasons, the best in uh, D or G-League history. And uh, I asked him, like, were you at all afraid that moving from college to the NBA, the three-point line is further away? Were you afraid about how that would affect your strategy. And he said, if anything, it actually helped because it made the defense widen out more and actually opened up those spaces for us. So I think that gets to your point, like uh, three pointers from 28 feet away, which were basically unprecedented before recently, they've doubled just in the last two seasons. So that shows how quickly this is changing when you have, then this gets to the next part of the piece, but you have guys like Trey Young now entering the league who, like before it was just Steph Curry shooting from out there, now you have a bunch of rookies entering the league who already know they can do that. Right, and that that Trey Young uh, game against the Rockets in which he shot 8 for 12 from 3, all of those 12 attempts came from 27 or further, further out. It was amazing. 
Yeah, and one way to look at it, it's like in football. Sometimes there's value in football and just throwing it deep to make a defense think about those plays, right? Like when you get the ball 45 yards down the field, now the defense has to extend farther out to guard it. It's the same basic idea in basketball. If you're shooting it from farther away, the defense has to reach farther out, which opens up more room behind the defense to attack inside too. And if you think about trying to manipulate the available space on offense, the first three pointers that people really sought were corner threes. They stretched the floor horizontally, but you can't go any further horizontally because then you reach the sideline. <laughs> so the only way to do that is start extending further back vertically. Right. And to me, the other thing really, as I was reading this piece, and you're talking about defensive counters and the difficulty of guarding threes, and it just seems like, it feels like even now, there's still so many traditional bigs in the league. And in like five years, I just wonder, if you cannot guard a three-point line, can you still be in the NBA? So basically, Cram, you have helped bolster Charks's manifesto of... Exactly. Yeah, That's the, why you're on this pod. The 6'8 the <laughs> wing who can play all five positions... Uh, being the, the the model NBA player for the next 50 years. And I think that's honestly a, a question. I, it's pretty clear at this point that three-pointers are rising in the NBA, and to a large extent, they work. I think the question is, what does it look like in five, 10 years when players who grew up playing this way have now filtered it into the NBA? Because like, if you look at tall players now, uh, for the most part, before the last couple of seasons, they had to learn how to shoot in the NBA. Even this season, like Brooke Lopez is a great example. He was never shooting three-pointers in college. He was never shooting three-pointers when he first entered the NBA, and he had to learn over time. Now he's very good at it, but that was still a process. Whereas- oh, that's a, that's a good point. So I'm just thinking, so with Carl Towns, so this is crazy. He came into college, and everyone's like, Carl Towns is so soft. He shoots too many threes. And, and Calipari said, Cat, I'm putting you in the post. We're going to show them you're a post player. You'll be the number one pick in the draft. And now he's like still unlearning that four years later, where it's like, Cat, take seven threes a game, please. Quit wasting your time in the post. And and you wonder if that will like definitely continue changing. Like uh, Bull Bull from Oregon, you know, he's obviously been out a while for injury, but he was shooting a lot of three pointers. Even like DeAndre Ayton, who hasn't taken really any threes in the NBA so far, he was still taking one a game in college. So you wonder as his offensive profile continues to evolve, can he start stepping out and taking more threes like he was in college? So I think, like I had a quote in there from Arsenault where he said, uh, at some point, you know, an NBA team will be taking two thirds of their shots from three. I don't know if with the talent pool we and the player pool we have now, if any team can realistically approach that mark, but could they in five, 10 years when those new players are in the NBA? I don't really see why not. Right. Yeah. And the interesting thing too. So like, if that's the upper limit, the quotes have been in my head all season, as I had an executive told me, he thinks the average in five or 10 years will be 45% three point shots for every team in the league. So like every team is baseline will be the Rockets. Yeah, and I, one of the quotes that Arsenal gave about kind of watching NBA games and being impatient, um, you know, seeing all of these potential threes that could be taken, but the NBA players are just either hesitant or just they aren't wired to think, oh, this is the first shot that I should be taking. That I found that really fascinating in terms of like they're basically like, yeah, Arsenal is basically looking at basketball completely differently now. And I, I think that that'll probably continue to change as more, not just players with this mindset, but I wonder if we'll see more coaches with this mindset hired. Nick Nurse in Toronto is an obvious example. He was a D-League coach in Houston under Maury before he took this job. And now the Raptors are shooting more threes. So 
I wonder if we'll see that pipeline change too. It's kind of like we have Charks mentioned the NFL earlier. Like the NFL is now basically hiring anyone who's ever <laughs> run an innovative <laughs> offensive system to run their team because they see how it's working. So I wonder if the NBA will start to evolve in that way too. Because besides Nurse, it hasn't really to this point. Like I guess you could say Brooklyn is another example of that. But Budenholzer for probably. the most part, they've been drawing from the same kinds of coaches. So I wonder if we'll start seeing like college assistants just get hired to pretty high profile jobs in the NBA because they're running more innovative styles and you know the team wants to get the first mover advantage. So one one thing that I've noticed and I think I I've talked with this uh Kevin Clark actually. So the average three point percentage this season is actually down from the past what five seasons, right? By by a small amount, right? By about one percent. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I was wondering if if it had anything to do with the fact that just every single position is taking more threes now. And so you're having a bunch of centers who probably haven't really had a lot of game experience shooting these threes, now attempting them. And so the, the percentage might dip a little. But I'm I'm wondering five years from now, if everyone is kind of acclimated to this style of play, like, does percentage go up or does it stay more or less the same? And I think that's also getting to Charks's point about how maybe defenses are evolving. Uh, ben Falk had a great piece at cleaning the glass last week where he was analyzing the Bucks defense and the Bucks have a good defense, but they give up a lot of three pointers and he drilled down into like the exact players the Bucks were allowing to shoot threes. And for the most part, the reason is the Bucks have done a very good job about identifying these are the shooters you need to stick to and these are the shooters you can, you know, let shoot. So I wonder if teams will continue to to figure out those like more team specific strategies, maybe that'll change in the playoffs when you can really home in on a, a roster over a seven game series. But I think over the course of an 82 game season, I'm not sure how viable that is for all 30 teams to embark on. Yeah. And two, I'm obviously like, as the years go on, there's going to be fewer and fewer players where you can say, Oh, Let's leave him open and shoot threes. So I liked about this piece too. So I did a piece this week on uh, Josh Richardson and how he's kind of grown as a player this season. And the big jump for him is he's gone from taking like four threes a game to like six and a half threes a game. And I think what excites me the most about like the way the league is going is I feel like the raise in three-point rate, it's kind of changing the model of what a star looks like. Because not only are you taking more threes is less physically demanding, but as the floor opens up, it becomes easier to score inside from guys who aren't quite as big and as athletic. So to me, five, 10 years from now, I think we're going to see more stars in the league because stardom is not going to be as dependent on physical ability as it is now. It's more about skill, and that can be developed in younger players. One thing that we've noticed from the very higher ends of the, of, of the sport. So, you know, we've seen James Harden, we've seen Paul George average 10 or more threes per game. We see how that's affected them. I think one thing that Charks, your your Josh Richardson feature really hit on was the fact that this overall mentality has kind of impacted players way further down in the totem pole. I love that. It's a trickle-down theory of threes. Yeah. I just ran the numbers. I, I looked at players who are six foot ten or taller, and their shooting percentage actually hasn't changed on threes that much, even as they're taking a lot more. So one of the numbers I had in my piece is that players six foot 10 or taller five years ago took about 4,000 threes in a season. You know, that's guys like Dirk Nowitzki, 
uh, players six foot ten or taller now are on pace for about eleven thousand threes. That's an increase of almost three times, but their percentage actually hasn't budged that much. So I actually agreed with your theory, Danny, but uh, maybe it's just random variation. Yeah, it seems like it. Charles, did you want to hit up this uh, this four point shot? Yeah, we should talk about that real quick. So, what do you think about that as like way down the line? Do you think that's I mean, people have been talking about it for a while now. So the four-point shot, maybe at like 30, 35 feet. Do you think we could see, well, how would that, you think that would ever, ever be possible? If anything, I think that would warp the geometry of the floor even more. Because if you think teams are already drifting back to 28 feet and beyond, even without the four-pointer, just because players can shoot from that distance now, just because that opens up more space. I think if anything, if it, you say, oh, you only just, step back two more feet and get a whole extra point, I think that would change the calculus even further. I don't know if this is just a random blip yet or a sign of things to come, but when I was looking at the shots from 28 feet away, so those are not as high percentage shots as those right at the three-point line, of course. So throughout history, uh, every year, team or like the league was below 30% or around 30% on shots from 28 feet or beyond. This year, so far, they're at 34%. That's a pretty big difference. Oof. They're almost shooting as well from 28 feet and beyond as they are from like every other three-pointer uh, on the court. And there's a sample bias there because only certain players are taking shots from that distance. But if that percentage continues to creep up, I think, if anything, we'll just start seeing like teams you know running their offensive sets as soon as they cross the half court line and i think it makes sense too because like you listen to i remember Shaq had a quote the other day where he's like if i was in the league now i'd be like Giannis." and you think about like Shaq came into the league really slim and he got bigger and bigger as time progressed but nowadays like the big men are trying to stay leaner so i think eventually you'll see more and more bigs with like Giannis like ability to cover space and you almost have to play farther out just to get any shot off Right. Shaq kind of like put on blubber just to take the pounding of being himself. So with, you know, the defensive rules that have changed since then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he would have stayed lean. Uh, yeah, we're on a keto diet now in the NBA. <laughs> but I, I feel like the four point shot thing kind of boils down to one thing. Uh, how convincing was Ray Allen's performance in the celebrity game? Do you think do you think the four point shot broke the game then? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's a deep cut. Celebrity game scouting. I, I don't actually know the range in which that four-point shot was taken at the celebrity game. It didn't look very far. Like, if that's, if that's the actual line, I, I think, like, Steph's going to be averaging, like, 42 points in, like, five years. Yeah, there's no reason. You know, it could also help uh, older guys. Like, there was the ESPN piece from earlier this season about how LeBron James, as he's uh, aged, has just started taking deeper and deeper threes because he doesn't want to expend as much energy on offense and because so, he can't get well, well, way, yeah because yeah, he can but you know as steph curry ages it's not like he'll lose his shooting touch so i can imagine like 38 year old steph just moving like 20 feet in either direction jacking you know well i not guess not threes but four pointers well i mean i think either way as we've been talking about even without the four point shot just the value of the deeper shot with the geometry of the floor makes it valuable like if you can make 35 foot shots you should be taking them right there's my take for the day <laughs> it's the idea that there's no bad shot from Steph Curry anywhere on the court. Mm -hmm. Okay, Cram, one final question before we let you go. It's 2029. Both Luka Doncic and Trey Young are 30 years old in the prime of their careers. How many threes are they attempting per game? Ooh, that's a really good question. 
Are, are we assuming there's no four point play? For now, let's look at the <laughs> yeah. threes. Yeah, no, yeah. no fours. I think they will be attempting like 12 to 15 threes per game, maybe on the higher end, depending on what team they're like. James Harden this year, I think, is a good example of that, where he's setting all sorts of records. But I do think that's partly just because he had no other choice. So I'll say I'll say around uh, 15 per game. So they'll be where Harden is now, basically. There, there you go, man. Harden, ahead of his time. Amazing. Thank you, Zach, so much. Thank you, guys. You have a good one, Zach. Absolutely. And you can find all of Zach's analytical brilliance at theringer.com. Please read his work because it's really fantastic. So one team that's obviously adhered to this three-point revolution is Milwaukee. And we seem to talk about them ad nauseum on this pod. As we should. But it's yeah, it's only because they're really, really good and really, really fun. And that's why they're one half of our NBA watch of the night. Uh, The Bucks visit the Lakers tonight. You can catch the game on at 1030 Eastern on ESPN. Charks, what are you looking forward to here? I mean... LeBron versus Giannis, you know. It feels like uh, A New Hope when Darth Vader and Obi-Wan are facing off in the Death Star. But now the student has become the master. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's basically the team that has cruised throughout the season without a single hitch versus the team that can't seem to make it past a single postgame without manufacturing, you know, new drama, pretty much. It, it's truly a yin and yang matchup. It, it's beautiful. I feel like we were robbed of a LeBron Giannis playoff series. I don't. I don't know that's going to happen, but that would have been awesome to watch those guys. Watch a real hand, passing of the torch. Uh, we can only dream. But I, I mean, that's why we have. That's why we have this Friday game. You know, there you have it. And uh, remember, if you want to watch every NBA game, subscribe to NBA League Pass on NBA.com or your local cable or satellite provider. So yeah, it, I mean, the Lakers are like must watch now every night. Something crazy is going to happen. LeBron's going to freak out. Like, it's, it's great stuff. I mean, the past five games, he's at what? A, he's basically averaging a 28-point triple-double, uh, shooting 47% from the field. You know, playoff LeBron has been activated or whatever. But, well, you know. On offense, at least. <laughs> well, hey, you know, if, if people are saying he's a bad defender, they should just come at him. Oh, here we right? go. LeBron's quotes. <laughs> So yeah, it's about that time. Let's let's throw an outlet pass for the weekend. Um, my favorite game of the weekend is also a game that's happening tonight. Uh, it's Clippers Kings. The other two teams that are really fighting for that those final two spots, along with the Spurs. Uh, the Kings are two games behind the Clippers right now. The Clippers have already kind of won the season series between the two, but at this point, every game is precious. You know, they lost two very winnable games earlier in the week. Uh, against the Wolves, against the Bucks, uh, Marvin Bagley suffered a pretty scary-looking knee injury in the third quarter of that Bucks game, but an MRI showed no structural damage. So we're looking at maybe one to two weeks of an absence. Where do the Kings go from there? I mean, I guess it's going to be Harry Giles. I, I think that really this game will be the battle of benches. So you look at the numbers. The Clippers starters have been killed since the trades. because So they're starting like uh, Zubac, Landry Shamit, SGA, a lot of rookies. Really, their bench has been winning games for them. I mean, with Lou Williams, they added uh, Jamichael Green, Garrett Temple. Right. And I think how those guys fare against the Kings' new second unit without Harry, without, without Bagley, I think will be huge in this game. So last week, we talked about how Bielitsa had kind of basically been evaporated from the rotation. Do you think he comes back? I, mean, I think he has to now. Right. 
it'll be interesting to see how they stagger his minutes versus Bogdan because he's been starting lately. There's a lot of moving parts. That's kind of crazy about these, these, these teams. There's a lot of moving parts for both teams because they both really changed their roster at the trade deadline. Yeah. So, Charks, what's, uh, what's your pick? I mean, I got to stick with Rocket Celtics. First off, just Kyrie postgame. Forget the game itself. I just need to tune in <laughs> for those two-minute segments. Kyrie's media criticism game is on, on point. This is, so I'm always there for that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's the game within the game. It's the post-game within the post-game. You know, Kyrie, KD, LeBron, they're just all-stars on a completely different like plane of existence right now. It's just like every single post-game interview they give is just like gold. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for us, for sure, for the content people. I think I'm, as far as the actual game, to me, it's Chris Paul. So since the All-Star break, he's averaging 19 points, 9 assists on 47% shooting. Of course, he had that great game against Golden State last week when Harden was out when he carried him to a victory. And I mean, if the Rockets are going to make noise, they got to have Chris Paul playing well. We'll see if he keeps it going against Boston. Like This is something to watch going forward is, can Chris Paul get back? Has he been sandbagging it all season? Can right. he get going now towards the playoffs? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's an interesting matchup for the for the Rockets just because, you know, you look at the Celtics, they're floundering right now, sure, but they have everything that the Rockets seem to really covet in players that they just don't have right now. It's just like they don't have any kind of length or any kind of like depth in the perimeter. Yeah, that scene for Houston was like, if they play OKC in the first round, like who's going to guard Paul George? Like Amon Shumpert? Or Eric Gordon or something like they have no size in the perimeter at all. Okay. So how they can how that, how that goes is really important. For them. I mean, you know, Gary Clark Jr. had his best game as a pro last night against the Heat. Uh, Maybe you know, Gary he's, Clark. He's yeah. a guy, I guess. But seriously, where's Daniel House? I thought like this was supposed to be. I knew that. That's what that's where we were coming. Right. That's where it leads <laughs> to. Yes. I, Always time for house talk. So I I don't think he necessarily qualifies for that whole. Um, you know, you where you have to sign as a free agent. There's the deadline for when you are eligible for the playoffs. I don't think he's quite the veteran that that applies to. But like, where is he? I I, I thought this was going to be happening like a week ago. They kept saying, "Oh, he's hopeful. He's hopeful to join the team." It just hasn't happened yet. It's tough because it's like with the agent, they want a long term deal. I know Houston needs to fill out their roster. They have guys on ten days right now at the end of their bench. So, right. But where is? Where is Daniel House talk? We're in the pod with that, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, like, yeah, like freaking Corey Brewer had just, Corey Brewer just got two mil guaranteed for the rest of the season. There's like, oh, yeah, for the Kings. There's like That's 20 games left. Bench. That's amazing that he got two mil. So come on. Tillman Fertito, where are you? Let's do this. He's got to get some of those golden nuggets, man. Come on, Tillman. Cash in some of those casino chips. <laughs> Okay, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Thanks as always for listening. Uh, KOC will be back next week. So until then, talk to you soon, Jerks. Yeah, have a good one, y'all. It's fun. It's fun.